Welcome to Muslims Doing Things, a podcast about extraordinary Muslims and their career journeys. Today we have Sada Khan. Um, Sada, what do you do? Hey, Assalamualaikum. Hi, um, my name is Sara and I am a travel journalist. I write, I've reported from six different continents, soon to be seven, um, for various newspapers and magazines around the world, like the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, Wall Street Journal. And most recently, I was editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Traveler's Middle East edition in Dubai. What's the seventh continent that you're about to? I'm I'm going to Antarctica next month, so that'll that'll <laughs> be. I'll I'll hit them all after that. So fingers crossed, oh it as well. But I'm really excited. That's amazing. So um, I'm sure you're aware of this, but you pretty much like there are a few dream jobs that everybody thinks they're going to be when they're a kid. Like one is marine biologist. The second is like definitely travel journalist. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm excited to see how glamorous it how glamorous it is, but also like how not glamorous it is. Yeah. I'm sure there's like a lot to going to Antarctica outside from like seeing cool penguins and stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah. let's take it way, 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 way back. So uh, where where were you born? So I was born in Canada, but I moved to Saudi when I was two. So I actually grew up most of my formative years in Jeddah. And then so I've lived in six countries, six, I think now. Yeah, six countries now. So after Jeddah, I moved to Massachusetts, lived in India for a bit. South Africa and Dubai in my later years in life. So I kind of, I feel like this is kind of a very obvious job for me. But yeah, I think my love for travel actually was born in Saudi where uh, my dad worked for the airline, Saudi Airlines, and my mom was a journalist. So this really kind of feels like full circle. Like I have sort of combined everything I grew up with into my career. And so did you go to school in Saudi? Yeah, so I went to the American school, the international school there. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. I was growing up with kids from 50 different countries. It was a, a really great way to grow up. When did you move to, was it Canada that was next? And no, it was, it was Massachusetts next. So I moved there halfway through seventh grade. Yeah, and then okay. I hated it. And then I moved to India and lived with my grandparents for two years in middle school before moving back to Massachusetts for high school. And were your parents still in Massachusetts at that point? Yeah, so it was so one of those independently things where... made the choice to get up and go. Yeah. And it's funny because now that I'm my parents age back then, I'm kind of like, why did you let me do that? I mean, obviously I was living with my grandparents in India. So it wasn't like some strange, it wasn't like I was, I'm going to move to Paris and find myself or anything like that. But it still just feels like you should not have been letting me make those decisions for myself at that age. You know, it's so cool because I, I, I also have parents who just let us be highly independent. Like I think I traveled to see my aunt when I was like eight by myself for the first oh, time. Wow. I like insisted to my mom. I was like, I need to go see my aunt Miriam. My mom was like, you're a kid. And I remember she walked me to the airport and was like, you're sure you want to do this? I was like, yeah, we bought a ticket from the desk. I'm, I'm you know, not to age myself. Yeah. And I was talking to her about the story recently. And she's like, yeah, you were insistent at that point. What could I like do? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I realized that she was very big on kind of enabling this like self-belief, which worked out because I, I do believe in myself. So I guess, you know, yeah. she got what she wanted at the end of the day. But yeah. um, so you're, you're in India, you come back to Massachusetts because I'm assuming high school, everybody knows it's easiest to get into an American college from an American high school. Exactly. And Is it's funny because effectively? that that was totally logic. And it was also my own logic. So that's what's really funny that I was making these decisions for myself at that age, because <laughs> I really enjoyed my stint in India. Like I grew up going to India every year. It really felt like home for me. But then when I came, you know, I finished ninth grade there and I was like, all right, well, this is fun, but is this real life? Like, you know, if I want to go to college in America, which I do, shouldn't I go back there? You know, like whatever, what was I, you know, this is what my parents should have said to me in the first place, but seventh grade sucks for everyone. Like, why are you getting so dramatic? So eventually, basically I matured by 10th grade and I was like, all right, I need to go back there, finish high school there and then go to college, which is exactly what I ended up doing. So you went to high school in Massachusetts. Which part of Massachusetts, by the way? Um, so, well, I went to two different high schools in Massachusetts. First in Norwood, which is um, a suburb south of Boston. And then in my senior year, we moved to Sharon, which is also in that same general area. Right, right, right. No, I, I've spent a lot of time in Cambridge. So I'm oh, super cool. aware. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, yes, my, my home away from home. But this, uh, so, so you're in high school and then you go to college. Um, what was your like thought process then? Were you like, okay, I'm going to be a journalist? Like, tell me about the college journey. Yeah, well, actually, I knew I wanted to be a journalist when I was eight. So again, it was kind of watching I mean, my mother like adds up with your story. There's a lot of like self assuredness at a very young age. But anyways, I'd love to exactly. hear about that. Yeah. So well, I mean, I had I was lucky I had a role model in my mom, right? Like when you're eight, you want to be a princess, you want to be a firefighter, you have all these things. But I knew my Marine mom biologist and travel journalist. Yeah, exactly. But my mom was a lifestyle journalist in Saudi. So um, she was writing for all like the big Saudi newspapers and magazines and in flight magazines and, and all this stuff. And so I I knew I like writing stories. And I think if I didn't have her as a role model, I might've been like, I want to be a storyteller or write books or something. But because I saw what she was doing, I was like, I want to be a journalist. And so I always knew that was kind of what was going to happen in my life. I, and then um, 
when I got to college, I went to Boston College and I studied English and communications. And then after that, I was like, okay, let me get a master's in journalism. So I went to Syracuse. And so it was just literally since I was eight, there's people who meet me now who knew me in Saudi when I was eight. And they're like, oh, I remember when you used to say that and you actually went ahead and did it. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. And and I, like the self-assuredness, definitely a theme. So you in college, you know, you're going to study journalism. You go to Boston College. Do, at that point, like the nice thing, which I don't think folks realize when they're very young, is if you know what you're going to do, which is not a requirement, but if you know what you're going to do at a young age, you can actually get started just doing it. Yeah. So yeah. were you able to take advantage of that Boston College? And what were the steps you took with the kind of clarity on your career? So it's interesting. I feel like I actually, I knew I wanted to do that. And I did, like, I, I majored in English and comms and I wrote a bit for the school newspaper, but I actually didn't um, get super micro into it. Like I was even taking all kinds of different classes. I was open to different things, even though I, not career-wise, I knew I was going to do this, but I didn't really, I feel like there were other options. I could have gone to BU and studied journalism at the journalism school, which was an option, but I kind of wanted a broader education undergrad and then sort of, you know, get really more micro and focus on it more in grad school and then later. So that was kind of how I did it. So I had a broad liberal arts undergrad education. And then when I got to Syracuse, I did a master's and it was a magazine newspaper online journalism. And this is dating myself too. Like this is 2004. I graduated where they said online, but they didn't really have very many digital classes because the internet was still kind of like becoming a thing at that point. And so that's where I think growing up, I, did, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I think you're used to think, you know, things like foreign correspondence and news and things like that. And, you know, I should write for Time Magazine someday or write for, you know, like Boston Globe because that's where I was living. But I think when I was in grad school, I took a few magazine editing classes and that's when I fell in love with lifestyle journalism. And that's when I was like, okay, this is what I enjoy. Um, you know, just like whether it's women's magazine or just lifestyle and, and um, in design or and, or travel, obviously, but I think I kind of, that's when I was like, no, I want to do this. I don't really see myself as a breaking news reporter out in the field, you know, on Capitol Hill and doing things like that. This, I'd rather be kind of focused in the lifestyle space. Did you go immediately to grad school from undergrad? Yeah. And I think that was partly because I'm Indian and I was like, I need, I need a master's degree in something. And I know I want to be a journalist, so I'm going to get a master's in journalism. And I, I kind of was like, it was almost a checkbox thing. I think now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend to young aspiring journalists that they have to do that or they should do that. I think um, there's just journalism is something you should really just be learning out in the field, right? And um, whether it's through internships or whether it's through your first few jobs. And so I think back then it's something that I needed, especially because I hadn't focused on it in undergrad and I didn't really have internships and stuff like that. I was, like I said, doing a much more broad uh, undergraduate education. So for me, it made sense to sort of learn things and kind of fine tune. But I think you know, 20 years later, I'd be like, just, just get out there and, and just do it. You know, what's interesting about your story, and you said you grew up in Riyadh, you spent some time in India. Um, often, I, I've had a few people who work in journalism of some various form on this podcast, right? And they cover different things. And a lot of them tend to be American born or kind of spent more time here as kids. And the, the, the genesis, the inception of the idea is around, we're so poorly represented. But your story is a little different because you're like, this is cool. Like I've seen a lot of places like you didn't necessarily have the impact of the representation battles. Um, did representation play a role or were you just really curious and wanted to kind of have a filter of your own to represent the world through? So that's actually a really good question because I think it didn't play a role in how I, like, I just was like, I want to do this and I'm going to do this and I'll figure out how. And, you know, back in the late nineties and early two thousands, when I was getting started in, in college and, and in the working world, there weren't very many role models either. So I didn't really know what, I mean, yes, I obviously knew there was a big void, but I didn't really know. I wasn't really thinking of it that way. Right. And I think even if you look at some of my early work, when I did start in, journal, in magazines in New York, I was very much just sort of following the cookie cutter, like what, especially in the lifestyle space, like what there I should be doing and trying to just figure it out for myself. But I think as I got more and more successful, more and more established and more and more comfortable in my own skin, I realized that I have a really unique voice and a unique perspective that isn't seen out there. And I really should embrace and it wasn't that I wasn't embracing. I've always been very proud and very vocal, but I think it's sort of like let my writing and the, the choices of storytelling that I can do, let it actually reflect this and create or help, you know, grow this niche. Because by that point, you know, there's a lot more different Muslim journalists throughout, you know, whether it's news or lifestyle, it was kind of starting to become more popular. I was like in the travel space, I feel like I really have a really strong voice that I can share. It's interesting you call it a niche now, and that's exactly what it is, because at the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, the understanding was if you represent that side of you, you will be unemployable. That was kind of like, you know, that yeah. people would tell my sister, she was in law school, 
Um, and they'd say, well, how are you going to be a lawyer? Who's going to take a lawyer seriously in like the courtroom, which now is like comical. If anybody said yeah. that to anybody, I'd be like, yeah. go listen to my podcast. There's people who look different <laughs> doing all sorts of things. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it certainly is, um, as you kind of realize that there is a niche and that there's power in the niche and that you have mm-hmm. a voice, you can filter things through that represent a point of view. That's probably less heard. There certainly is power to it, even if you're not directly talking about things that impact our community and so okay you're in grad school um then what like you're like I need to get a job did you intern did you just start writing things like how did it actually (laughs) practically look yeah so then basically right after grad school my this is 2004 and I was like I'm gonna move home to Boston and I'll you know probably write for Boston Magazine or Boston Globe because that's all there was at the time didn't realize how hard it would be to break in so for my first year out of grad school I actually was working in public relations which I hated every second of and I know there's a lot of people in the communications industry that end up in PR and it's a it's a you know and they love it but for me the whole time I was like I'm on the wrong side of the phone I'm on the wrong side of the email I want to be the one getting pitched not the one pitching and on top of that I was doing tech PR which I knew nothing about and it like tried to like you know, convinced journalists to cover like servers and stuff that I did not even understand what I was talking about. It was like, it was, you know, tough. And so basically after about a year, um, and then I, I moved into a consumer PR agency, but I still was like, again, wrong side of the phone. Um, and I really need to, if I, like, I was worried if I don't do the switch into journalism properly now, I'm going to get stuck. Right. And I don't know, I feel like now you can be more fluid. Everybody has side hustles and there's more flexibility. But I think back then there was a clear concern that if you end up on the wrong track, you will end up there and you'll just keep moving up the ranks and you'll never end up doing what you love. So I was like, all right, well, if I'm serious about this, obviously there's not that much opportunity in Boston right now. So I need to be in New York. And I just started hustling. Like I was, um, you know, constantly going, like calling in sick and going to New York for, uh, you know, informational interviews with people either from my alumni networks at both BC or Syracuse or, you know, people I met through the South Asian Journalists Association, constantly asking people to connect me to other people. And literally I would um, set up a bunch of meetings. I'm like, I'm going to be in New York on, you know, November 13th and just set up a bunch of meetings and then call in sick and take the bus up and then come back that same night and then go to work the next day. And through that, I ended up getting my first job in New York. Um, and so I, I, I was ready to move to New York without a job if I had to. But I think at that point I was like, let me at least try for six months. And then I, I found a job as a copy editor at a lifestyle magazine called Gotham. It was like this company that does different uh, luxury lifestyle city magazines around the world. They have Gotham, they have LA Confidential over there, they have um, Boston Common, like they just have a bunch of different magazines. So based in New York, um, so that was sort of my first foot in the door into lifestyle magazines. And um, through that, because it's always great when you work in a small publication, you get to do a lot more. I was doing celebrity cover interviews within a few months, and I built up a really good portfolio. And then I did that for maybe three years. And then at that point, it was sort of like, okay, now that I have a strong portfolio and a strong basis, now I need to figure out what is it that I really want to do? Like, what kind of journalism do I want to focus on? What subject matter? And that's when I was like, travel. I love travel. I grew up traveling. I've been to 30 countries before I was 12 because of my dad's, um, you know, because growing up in Saudi with my dad working at the airline. And who doesn't love travel, right? Like you said, like, it's a dream job. And so I sort of set my eyes on Travel and Leisure magazine. I saw a job opening and actually for a year because this was around the 2008 financial crisis. And so there was a job that I was like applying for and interviewing for and then they put it on ice. And then like six, eight months later, I followed up and then finally they they hired me. And that was my break into travel publishing specifically. So I was working there for four years and then um, and then I went freelance. And, and yeah, that's what I've been doing for now. 14 years, I think, travel journalism. There's a storyline there in Persistence, and I saw it in, like, when you were talking about, first of all, knowing that you wanted to go back to India, knowing kind of what you wanted to do as a young kid, um, knowing that you were going to break out of PR, hopping on buses, and then even, you know, when you broke out of PR, saying, I want to get into this very particular niche. Um, So it seems like if I had to assume Persistence is something you're very good at. What are other characteristics that made you good for the job then that you have carried through until now? I think when you're going to go freelance, you need to have a thick skin. And I don't think I realized what a thick skin I had until I was in it. Because with freelancing, you will, without, despite having some of the best you know, um, credentials and some of the best bylines, it's constantly a hustle. And you're constantly you know, putting yourself out there to new people, constantly pitching ideas, and often not even getting, like, forget rejection, not even hearing back. And these are from people you've worked with before, right? So I think just sort of, it's that persistence where you just know that you cannot take things personally. You just constantly have to put yourself out there. And for every, you know, 100 pitches you put, you might get two assigned. And that's just the way it is. And I think 
a lot of people, especially now, just get sort of scared off by that because that just feels like, oh my God, I'm doing it all wrong. I'm in the wrong thing. And I think for me, yeah, the persistence, I just sort of had from a very young age knew that I'm, I want to do this and I'm good at this and I, this is what I'm going to do and figuring out my own path from it. Because like I said, when I was starting um, in 2004, there weren't very many role models as Muslim journalists, South Asian journalists in the lifestyle space. And I didn't really have like, okay, this is the roadmap because even to do what I've done where I started magazines and moved into freelancing and then went back and became editor in chief of a magazine and then and gone back and, and now freelancing again, it's, it's like, there was no clear, like, this is that, this is, you know, like when you're doing medicine or law, there's, you know, you, you go through law school and then you do your internships and you, you know, or you go through medicine and you do your rotations. Like there's a, a path you're, you know, that you're supposed to follow. There was that I made my own. And I think a lot of that was just kind of putting myself out there and taking risks and knowing that like, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to make sure I do it in some way. You know, the last, um, two people I recorded before you, I recorded Lorraine Ali yesterday and I recorded Rami the week before and all mm -hmm. three of you are in creative industries. Um, Lorraine's a journalist as well, but she's a TV critic and a culture writer. Yep. Rami obviously is on TV a and it's interesting because all three of you have touched on the same point that you're creatives. There was no roadmap. You kind of mm -hmm. had to figure it out. Yeah. Um, often there was no, actually for all three of you, you haven't said this yet. So I'm going to speak for you. Stop me if I'm wrong, but no, you did say this. There was no precedent, yeah. right? You mentioned that early on. So, so like, I think that there's something there in terms of kind of these creative careers, but as we kind of talk about your role freelancing, I mean, that's like the king of needing to figure out your own ish. What does that look like? So you quit your job. How did you know what it looks like to freelance? Do you need a, a manager? Do you need an agent? Do you just need contacts you send pieces to? Like tactically the day you quit your job, what does your life look like at that point? Yeah. So I actually, I moved to South Africa and that's where I went freelance from. And so for me, I was like, all right, I have, you know, I've been, I've been an editor at Travel and Leisure Magazine. So I have instant credibility. I have some clips from that. And I'm now living in a really cool travel destination that it's expensive to send writers to. Um, so why don't I just sort of make this my niche for now? And so I just started cold pitching. And if you look at a lot of my earliest bylines, it wasn't because I was an editor at Travel and Leisure. Like I literally, my within a few months of being in South Africa, I cold pitched the New York Times travel section, my first um, you know, story idea from there, I got it commissioned and you know, everything was just literally just figuring out people's email addresses and setting them ideas. And so I think I realized, and again, there was no roadmap, but I realized, okay, what do I know really well that is unique? And then let me use that as my foot in the door and then I'll move to other things from there. So with the New York times, I pitched them this, you know, Johannesburg restaurant that was really cool. They commissioned it. And then I pitched them a few other South Africa things. And then within a year I was, you know, covering Namibia and Estonia and Brazil and everything for them, you know? So I think that was kind of what I did. That was really smart was, you know, taking a bit, like putting my resume out there. Like I worked at travel and leisure instant like recognition and then here's an idea that no other writer can get you because they're all over there. They're not really staying on top of these cool things happening in South Africa. And then once I've proven myself and made, you know, made that connection and shown you that I'm a, I'm a great writer, then I'm just going to pitch you the whole world and you're going to send me everywhere. And that's kind of, and again, I, I didn't ever talk to anybody to say like, is this how I do it? I just sort of like, that makes sense. I'm going to do that. And it's worked out. And I got in my time in South Africa and beyond, like since I moved back to New York too, I just was incredibly prolific. New York, like I said, New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, Time, Vogue, Rob Report, like just like off the back of one thing, I get another thing. And I ended up, you know, reporting from six different continents and having a great time. And, and tactically, what does that look like in terms of how you get paid, how you pitch people? Do you have like six people, you send them a pitch and they send you a check? Like, do you have an LLC? What does no, so I look like as a job. Yeah, so okay, so very like, and I think you asked like, do I have like a manager or stuff? No, it's all me. Like I'm like a self, like a my own little business, and I do everything from like you know, b pitching to accounting to everything. It's chaos. I should probably actually at this point, I really should hire and uh, um, at least an assistant. But yeah, so basically send out the pitch. Usually I just pitch one at a time. So like I, I won't send the same idea to multiple people. Someone eventually will hopefully buy it. And then I have to go out, report it and um, write it myself and then do all my budgeting, get, you know, like invoicing with and expenses and everything. I have an app for that. Um, and then, so then I submit the story and then I, you get paid afterwards. And, um, and I've actually been really lucky where I don't usually have to chase the, the publications that I write for are very good about paying upon, you know, publication and everything. So 
I haven't, but there's a lot of horror stories out there where you have to constantly be chasing to get paid like years down the line. So like, I've been lucky. I haven't really had to deal with that too much, but yeah, it's like, you're, you're never, every day is totally different because some days I end up focusing more on writing. Some days I end up focusing more on admin. Some days I'm researching new ideas and constantly sending pitches out there. Um, it looks a little different now in my freelance 2.0 period since I moved back to Dubai because I'm kind of, I'm, I'm lucky I'm actually getting a lot of assignments coming my way, which even happened before when I was freelancing before. But now it's like I'm being more selective. I'm not really pitching at all. And I'm just taking assignments that are sort of coming to me and doing a few other projects that interest me. So, but in the day-to-day -day grind of a freelancer, that's usually what it looks like every day. There's like some amount of a little bit of everything, a little bit of new business pitching, a little bit of admin and accounting, and a little bit of actually writing and doing the fun stuff. What's funny is with these roles without roadmaps, I think people often assume that there's a lot more freedom than there is. Yes, there's freedom, but like the freedom has to ultimately turn into some sort of structured time or some structured yeah. understanding of how you spend your time. Um, and so how do you deal with putting in the right discipline to figure out how much you're pitching, how much you're reporting. When you take breaks, like there's no such thing as a Saturday when you're freelance. Yeah, right? no. Like Sunday morning and you and I are talking. <laughs> yeah. This is a side project for me and you're a freelancer, right? So like, yeah. um, how do you, how did you develop that structure? And how often do you see people crash and burn when they can't figure that out? I mean, I think it's a real danger and I'm lucky that I haven't, but it is, it's funny because I don't think that I have a good structure in place. And again, now it's different because I just moved back and I'm like, figuring out what I want to do. But even when I look at my time before, it's sort of, it's just a little bit of doing everything all the time. Because for me, it's like, I'm, even when I'm in the middle of like a story that I love, I'm always worried that what if I don't have something else that comes next? So I'm constantly always thinking of the next idea, even when I'm immersed in the current one. So I feel like there's always a bit of the, the future like stuff, the what's happening right now. And then like the invoicing and then doing all the stuff for the past stuff. Like the, I think I've just kind of gotten into this structure where every day there's a little bit of everything. And you're right. There is no, like some of my best writing happens at like 1am and my best writing always happens right on deadline. I cannot, even if I'm giving myself three weeks to do it, it is not going to happen. It is the day before I'll be like, Oh my God. And even then there's always, there's a formula now when I write and my husband is funny. He's just kind of um, like I just got married recently. So he's actually seeing it unfold for the first time. And he's like, Oh, okay. Because my formula is I will put it off to the last minute, then I'll start. And then I, I'm convinced that I'm the worst writer in the world. I've lost it. I can't do it ever again. And then I have a whole meltdown and it will not really melt down, but you know what I mean? Where I'm like, Oh my God, Oh my God. And then all of a sudden it just comes and it's like, great. And so I think he, it's funny because he was at first like, Oh my God, can she really not write anymore? What does she mean? <laughs> and then actually he's realized that like, no, I just have to go through that phase. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, there's no formal structure. You just have to make sure you're constantly doing something. I think that's the thing for me. I can't ever just sit and be idle, whether it is ideating for the future, whether it is working on something that is due, whether it is figuring out past stuff. I'm just, every day I'm doing something and it's often at all other hours. I, I love hearing about the how behind creativity. So I studied architecture twice, actually. I was really sure I was going to be an architect and I didn't do that. I went to software engineering. But like what I do now is actually probably way more creative than anything I've ever done in terms of building a company from the ground up and putting yeah. product out and leading the products. But I, I love hearing about the creative process because as you were talking, I was envisioning myself in architecture school and I would always have big headphones on like this, very loud music. Nobody talked to me, coffee, maybe a snack, maybe not. And I would just like get into the zone and I gave myself really clear deadlines. Um, and it was the kid, the kids who didn't do well were the ones who never gave themselves deadlines yeah. because there's never the end of an idea. When you yeah. have a creative output, it can always be better in your head because better is subjective, right? So like yeah. there, there's a beauty to deadlines and yeah. I used to impose them on myself. I actually still impose them on myself. I, I keep, this is my kids. This is not a love every plug, but they send my kids <laughs> a bunch of free stuff. Um, and this is a timer they sent to my kids. I actually leave it on my desk and I set 20 minute increments for every task that That's I do. Amazing, yeah. I, won't, I won't get it done. Yeah. Like, I'll just be like, uh, uh and like all these things. I got a Slack here, notification there and yada, yada, yada. So like, I'm, I'm really into deadlines. I'm a total deadline stand. Yeah. Um, didn't think the podcast would take this direction, but anyway, so <laughs> you, you're freelancing, you're freelancing. What's like one of those stories or a few of those stories that really stand out to you when you look back and you're like, that was so cool. Like I did that. Well, honestly, so I think, you know, how I was saying earlier, there was a point where I was sort of writing cookie cutter travel stories and I didn't really find my voice. And I think when I started finding my voice, I realized what I absolutely loved is telling um, 
telling stories through my lens, which is a, a Muslim, South Asian woman, like, you know, I have many different parts of, of my personality. And I started telling stories that had to do with Islam around the world or, or looking at the world as a Muslim. And this started, you know, more like in the 2015 onwards part of my career. And so when I moved back to the US from South Africa in the fall of 2016, I literally moved two weeks before the election. And I was like, I don't understand what happened while I was gone. What 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 is going on in this country? And and then soon after um, Trump actually started, and there was a, the Muslim ban and all those kinds of conversations. And I was like, all right, well, I don't do hard news. There's no real place for what I do. Like, I, I couldn't really figure out like, I wanted to contribute to the conversation in some way, but I wasn't really sure what that would look like in the travel writing space. And then I realized, um, you know, because there was all this talk about like, you know, banning Muslims and everything. So I reached out to my editor at the New York Times. I was like, look, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in the world right now. And I just moved back and I'm, you know, it's, it's just very confusing to me. But also, I don't know what's going to happen where what if I'm not able to travel around America as a Muslim? Mm -hmm. And I've never really spent much time in America. You know, I usually travel overseas. So I was like, so much travel writing is middle-aged white men traveling to brown lands and finding common ground. And I want to, as a brown, not yet middle-aged woman, travel around American lands and find common ground. I just want to see what that would look like, you know? And so I ended up doing this big feature for the Times, uh, traveling around America as a Muslim woman. And um, I went first to, and I wanted it to be a travel story. This wasn't supposed to be me going to, you know, like, you know, like random towns and like the mining world and like looking for that. Kind. It was really a travel story. I want to travel around America. So I went to Nashville. I went to like, you know, honky tonk bars and country music, which I absolutely fell in love with, by the way. I'm a big country fan now. Um, and then I went to Memphis because I wanted to see the blues scene and, um, and, and, and Graceland. And then I went to Montana and Wyoming and like went to Yellowstone because I'd never really been to many national parks, um, went to rodeo and like went to like a gun range and all that stuff up there. And then I went to Minneapolis because I wanted to see kind of like, what does it look like in a city, a multicultural city that like, you know, like I've been hearing so much about all the, the big Somali community there. And I was like, I want to see what that's like. So kind of seeing different aspects of America and ended up doing, and I don't even, it was so hard writing that story because how do you combine these three very different parts of the country into one travel narrative? And the, the, the narrative was through me and like, what is it like traveling around America as a Muslim woman? And I think that was like a really big story for me, just personally, professionally, won a lot of awards, but it just, it kind of encompassed like the direction I wanted my writing to take um, as a freelancer at that point. And since then I've went, I also pitched that same editor. I was like, well, when there was a lot of, um, I mean, there still is, but you know, when you're hearing about all these things about the Muslim communities in France and England and how, how much, how many challenges there are, I was like, well, I want to go to Bosnia because it's an indigenous European Muslim community and like, you know, see what it's like there because we keep hearing about Muslims aren't from here, but like, there's a whole country that is from there that's been there for hundreds of years. Um, so I just went to Bosnia and traveled around and did a story on that. And then, um, you know, and then I went to, I did a story on Zanzibar with like the different, you know, Omani influence and things like that. And then, so a lot of, these are the kinds of stories I realized I really enjoyed telling uh, stories about different Muslim communities around the world or Muslim influences around the world. So when I went to Continental Traveler Middle East as editor in chief, one of the first stories I did, I went to Malta because they have this really interesting Arab legacy because they were colonized in the middle, medieval times and half of the Maltese language is still Arabic. And there's other really interesting, um, you know, cultural influences that have lingered a millennium later. And so I think that's what I've really realized that I, I love doing. And those are the kinds of stories I really love telling. And I feel like my perspective really adds a lot of value there. That sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited about this type of work because um, we've spent so much time it, it, I think we're in an era of nuance <laughs> where we're effectively saying, okay, like, yes, you know, there was a time in this country when we were seen as like one very monolithic and very scary, frankly, community. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now it's like, let me show you my view from my point of lens as somebody who's like deeply immersed in this community. But let me tell you about other people who like have the same belief, but just look different ways and do different things. And it's such a basic story when you and I are saying it, but there's so much space to like tell those stories within the larger country. Yeah. Um, cause, cause like, it's just, honestly, when, when folks don't have points of reference, they fall back on stereotypes and that's really yeah. dangerous because the stereotypes now are not in our favor as stereotypes yeah. need to be. So it's like cool work and it's cool because like the impact is intangible and it's hard to measure. Yeah. Um, but it seems like you have more, uh, you're not only kind of interested in the American point of view, you're very interested in the global point of view. Because yep. at some point you moved to Dubai to become an editor in chief. So I have like a ton of questions around that, but I think I can just make it one question. You can kind of answer the whole thing. Um, a, how did that happen? B, 
why? Like, why did you decide to make that transition? Um, see, how did the job look different? I'd imagine at that point, you're not producing, you were overseeing and you're maintaining a plan. Yeah. So just talk me through that situation. Yeah, I think it kind of, it's funny, it was from the pandemic because, uh, you know, a travel writer in a pandemic, like, you know, it was not, I mean, there are much bigger hardships happening, but it, it was definitely kind of, it made you question a lot of like, what am I doing and where, where does my career go from here? And around that time, this job opened up, the, the previous editor had moved on and I've worked with Pontiac Traveler for many years. I know the brand really, really well. And then I also grew up in Saudi and I know the region. And even though I hadn't really loved Dubai so much, I've traveled there many times, but I was like, this, this role seems really perfect for me. And it seems like a really smart next step for me. At this point in my career, I'm ready. I could be an editor-in-chief. I've been doing this long enough that like I've, I've kind of got the right, that's a, that seems like a logical next step if I'm going to not stay freelance forever. And um, so, yeah, so it's not something I was seeking. It's not like I was like always like, oh, yeah, I want to go back to a desk job someday. It just seemed like the perfect culmination of everything that I've been working both I, like what I was as a person and what I was interested in and what I could bring to the table in that region. Like I said, I in the later years of my freelance career, I'd been really focused on telling much more nuanced stories that might have been I was telling them more for an American audience, but like just kind of showcasing the, the diversity of the Muslim world and, and just different lenses. And so I thought this was a really unique opportunity. Um, so I moved out there. I ended up falling in love with Dubai. Like I really, really like it. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad I got to spend time there because it was really fun. And I got to really scratch below the surface by living there. But just from a professionally, um, it was great because I got to, like you said, I was overseeing a brand. So I was involved with a lot of different aspects. I learned a lot too, because as a freelancer for the previous eight years, you know, I had not... I've been able, it was, freelancing was great and I loved it and I'm, I'm back to it now, but you kind of, you get to cherry pick what you want to do. Whereas here you're literally involved with an entire brand from every, whether it's events, whether it's commercial, whether it's print, whether it's digital, social. So that was really, it was a good learning experience in a lot of ways, but stuff that I hadn't been doing, but it was also just really fun to, to work with a team and to do that. But I think what some of the stuff I love the most was, um, you know, as if you spend time in the Middle East, you know, there's a lot of expats in a lot of it. And I really, really focus on trying to find as many Arab writers that could I could commission to tell stories, whether it is about something specific to Arab community or diaspora, or just in general, to just have more local bylines, because um, I, I just didn't want it to just be another magazine that was told through the lens of expats. So both in terms of telling stories, like the Malta story um, that I talked about, and also I went, um, when my, I think my last issue, I went to Lamu in Kenya to tell that story of like the Arab influence there. Um, so I felt like I got to really do some of my own stories that were really interesting, but then also commission writers to tell, tell stories from Lebanon, from Cairo, um, and just make sure I had a lot of Arab bylines there from around the, the diaspora, which was really great. And then I think um, it was just, I mean, it was just a really fun experience to be able to work with that part of the world and then to it's such an interesting part of the world. I feel like coming out of the pandemic, the Middle East was really thriving in a lot of ways. And then Dubai last year with Expo and, and they had done really well with how they were managing the pandemic. And it was just a really hot travel destination. Got there in the buildup to the World Cup. Um, Saudi, you know, having grown up there and then going back for work several times in the last year, I was like, wow, this is the most interesting story in travel in the world right now with what they're doing. Um, so I think it was just a really interesting time to be there and to be telling these stories and, and sharing them both with the, you know, with the Middle East, because that's who my, my reader was at that point, but also being able to channel these stories out to the world as well. And did you, uh, what are the skills that you learned as editor-in-chief that maybe you didn't need to like build or develop as a, a writer? Well, a lot of it was just understanding commercially how a brand works, right? Because I never really had to worry about that. And so kind of really dealing with, you know, what just kind of expanding the readership and expanding the, uh, the advertisers and things like that. And then so from a social media perspective and digital perspective, really looking into metrics and like figuring out what would work. And I mean, I was only there for a year, so I feel like I didn't even get to scratch the surface, but I felt like there were so many interesting opportunities to really build that readership out and, you know, when you're doing print in the Middle East, it's obviously limited, but there's so much more opportunity with uh, the digital side where it could have been really appealing to the diaspora around the world and, um, you know, just kind of how we could target content to them. So I think that, like, I, I never really had to look. I was always able to just tunnel vision focus on my story, whereas here it was great to really get a sense of the bigger picture. Are, are, are editors-in-chief accountable for profits and loss or do they just know about it? Like, is that a P&L role at all? Um, you're definitely, you work very close with the publisher on it, but at the end of the day, you're sort of informing your editorial decisions with that in mind, but it wasn't something that I had to look at every day. 
so it's more of an orchestrator, right? Like as somebody yeah. who's kind of sat in that position and gets has gets to know the industry, is it the case where it's kind of like a director, like when there's a certain editor-in-chief, a magazine will have a certain brand or a certain flavor and it's kind of represents, maybe has a, a taste of that person? Yeah, and that's always the goal, yeah, because you kind of bring your vision. When you're hired, you're hired with a specific vision. For me, a lot of it was the local writers and, you know, kind of telling these stories. And then, uh, like, Connie Ash Traveler is a really interesting brand because they have seven editions worldwide that work together. So until I was there, it was more, the Middle East edition was a much smaller edition that would syndicate from the US and UK editions heavily. Whereas I was, when I went in, I was very clear. I'm like, look, we want to tell really nuanced stories from the Middle East that are going to then be syndicated by the US and the UK, not the other way around. And then I was able to accomplish that from like my second issue, like they were already syndicating stuff from us. So I think that like, yeah, you kind of come in, every editor has their own idea. And so those are some of my big ideas that I really wanted to execute. What's the hardest part of that job? It's just you're responsible for everything, right? And especially from when you go from being an independent person who just works on your own for your own stuff, you literally get to cherry pick what you want to do because you're pitching what you want to do. It's definitely hard to then be responsible for a team and to con constantly have to be thinking of so many different things. Um, but like I said, like, I, I mean, it was like a really great learning experience in so many ways. And also, like I said, Dubai is such a fun and dynamic city. So I think being able to be there and like work with all the people there, I think was really fun. But it was it was, there's just so much to be thinking about that I never had to think about before. Do you, do you have to say no in that role? Like, do people pitch you personally or do they pitch your people? Both. Like, yeah, you're definitely, the, you're constantly saying no. And I think one of the things I learned that I love from there, which I hadn't actually had to do in a long time and definitely not that level, is I loved, um, I realized I really liked editing and like editing other people's writing and in a thoughtful way. Like, you know, when I was last at a magazine, I was much more junior. So I was only like editing one writer and like, you know, one column. Whereas here, just kind of really first giving writers assignments that were really nuanced to kind of, you know, they come with me with a pitch and then working with them, like, okay, I want to see this and like trying to give them as much direction as possible off the bat. And then when the writing comes in, really working with them to shape it to what I felt it needed to be. And so because I realized I like that so much, one of the freelance roles that I'm doing now is I'm actually a contributing editor with um, a magazine where I am now getting to commission and, and edit things again, because I was like, I love writing and I'm glad to be able to do that, but I don't want to lose that. Like I love that relationship with writers and, and being able to accept pitches and help bring them to where they need to be. You know, it's funny. So I, I consider myself a very creative person, like above all, um, even in school growing up, like I would have thrived if I was born now, but growing up, I was like very creative and I struggled yeah. to kind of make that make sense in school. So I got older and got really good at school because I figured out like creative ways to kind of hack school like <laughs> this, right? <laughs> like, have yeah. and stuff like that. But, but the reason I'm saying this is um, I used to be very good at writing. That was just another medium for me to kind of translate what I would see visually into words. And as I've um, been more involved in PNL, as I've taken a role as like a founder and kind of been, have been running a company and have specific purview over the product and product design um, and just generally the product team, I've been able to strengthen those product skills. But I'm such a bad writer now. Like it's just a muscle oh, that no. I'm not exercise. And like it, 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 as a kid, it came to me naturally. It doesn't yeah. come naturally anymore. Right. Even the editing piece. And it's so far from kind of my day to day. And yeah. recently. So this also happened as I was kind of um, one, one of the, the reasons, the selfish reason behind this podcast is like I wanted to be a better orator. I wanted yeah. to speak slower. I wanted to be more clear. I wanted to be more eloquent. I wanted to get to a point faster. Um, the, the not selfish reason I've said a million times about, you know, building thought leadership and all that. But but the reason I'm saying this is like now as I look at my deficiencies as a person, writing is like one of them. And I'm like, I need to like, if I had a month to spend in like a den, I would just write that whole month. Yeah. You know, that's kind of how I tackle yeah. problems when I realize yeah. that I'm like not good at something. Yeah. So as you're kind of talking through the PNL side and the editing side and also like the writing side and the literally freaking booking tickets and getting over jet lag and like taking pictures of people and figuring out your story side, it's a job that I think is simplified into words but really requires such a broad array of experiences to be good at and i'm yeah. just like kind of amazed the reason i'm saying this is i'm amazed as i'm diving into it what it actually takes yeah not that i didn't know but you know when you put yourself in somebody's shoes you really yeah. start to think the nuances and details yeah um how, well it's actually how sorry has, to interrupt but it's actually funny yeah you talk about like writing as a muscle to exercise you're so right that is really what it is and i think part of why i took this job was because i felt like all I was good at was writing, if that makes sense. And I felt like it was almost formulaic. Like at that point in the pandemic, when I had time, when I wasn't traveling, like usually I'd be like, you know, on the plane, a hundred thousand miles a year. But like at this point I wasn't traveling. I got to really reflect. And I was like, as much as I loved my writing and it, I, I would like to think it was great. And I would like to think it was varied and didn't sound me. Like my process just felt me, Right. And I felt like mm. it's just, I'm not doing anything to challenge myself. And that was what was really attractive about this job is like, 
I will have to work my brain in ways that it hasn't worked in a long time. If I'm going to have to understand the financial side of putting out a magazine, I'm going to have to understand marketing. I'm going to have to understand, you know, digital, like directing the digital and not just like writing for it. And I think that was what was really satisfying is like, it's kind of like, you know, it was putting myself out there to force myself to learn new skills and my brain hurt in a really good way every day. And I, I, and it was just like, oh, I should do more different things sometimes because I think like for eight years, I kind of was constantly doing the same thing. No, satisfying is the right word. And I think the lesson there is like literally anything you do over and over and over again, you you likely will be good at, right? Like if you yeah. kind of figure out figure out how to hack it and figure out how to, how to get to it and put your vision on it. So you've done the freelancing thing. You've done the writing thing. You've done the Middle East thing. You've done the America thing. Turns out you've done the Africa thing and pretty much all the other continents. Have <laughs> How do you, how do you see this developing? Is is travel journalism tech typically a life a career that people do for life, or do they transition into you know I'd imagine as life has more variables that are unknown, whether it's children or this or that, maybe there's like shifts in the career and people say, okay, I'm going to write a book. How do you envision the career developing as you go? Yeah. So again, there's no roadmap, right? So there's people who go in all the different directions that you just mentioned. I personally have always wanted to write a book. It was one of the things I was hoping to do this summer, but then fortunately, good problem to have other, other work kind of just came to me and I, I and I've just been sort of busy with other things I would love to write a book though and I've, I've had a few ideas I've had an agent for many years and that I promised her in May that I would get her a proposal by the end of the summer and that obviously hasn't happened um so that well, is something that I know <laughs> I'm gonna make sure I don't send her this one I'll block it her on my social media when I put it out um no so like that is you know inshallah that's definitely a goal that I've had for a long time since before I even started travel writing specifically I've always wanted to write a book um and so that I would love to do um, I'd love to, to I, I want to continue writing, but then, um, like I said, editing has been really satisfying for me too. So I'd love to kind of keep doing these editing roles and opportunities, nothing full-time I don't see myself doing, because I feel like a lot of creatives, we just sort of like doing a lot of different things. And that's where I'm at right now. Like I do a bit of consulting with brands, which is really fun. Um, I'd love to maybe get involved with something on camera too. Like I've done a little bit of on camera on the past, which I've enjoyed. And I feel like that's something, again, when we talk about like exercising our brains, um, in new ways. The first time I did an on-camera thing where I had to work on my own scripting and, and go out in the field reporting, I, it, my brain hurt in a really good way. And I, I haven't really done that as much as I'd like to. So I feel like that's something I could do. So yeah, there's a bunch of different things. I feel like that's a cool thing when you're able to be freelance and do something you love. There's always going to be interesting opportunities that come your way that you didn't even realize existed. And then there's always target things. So for me, I think a book would probably be the next big target thing, but we'll see what else comes up along the way. You know, it's an interesting point you bring up because people come to me typically at the beginning of their career career, and they're like, hey, Leda, like, you know, I really want to be a journalist. I really want to be a designer, whatever it is. Yeah. And I'm kind of like giving tips. And I, I think it's hard to describe what it's like when you get past the hump of yeah. beginning. And it's that like opportunity becomes ample, but also very varied. So yeah. if you can just like work through, work your butt off, get your way through that getting on buses to New York City, asking yeah. a million people if you're right, writing about servers, if that's what it takes, right? Yeah, you kind yeah. of get to the point where your work and, and the way that you think um, is effectively respected enough to be paid for. Yeah. Uh, opportunity shows up. And I think that's like a really important message. And, and within our community, like within any community, frankly, there are careers that make a lot more sense, right? My dad's a surgeon. He knew what his job would look like in residency. He yeah. knew what it looked like when he was working. He knew what it looked like in retirement. Whereas, and so that's like a very comfortable path to take being a lawyer um different types of engineering not all maybe have more specific paths as well but i think that with creative careers um people tend to be a bit more afraid of them and then when you're in it there's this moment this moment sada's in this moment that i very much you know it, it resonates with me i understand it and i see it where like opportunity becomes ample because you've just stuck it through and even though there's yep. no roadmap you can pretty much pick what you want to do yeah yeah, no, definitely. And I think especially because it's there's careers and, and ways to make tons of money that exist now that didn't exist five years ago. Like the things that one could be doing now in 2022 would not have like how what would at 20 at 2004 when I was graduating grad school, if you told me you could like make millions being a TikTok star, like I would have been like, what are these words coming out of your mouth? Right. And so I think that's the thing. You just need to stick it out and do what it is that gets you excited and what you think you can contribute. And then the opportunities just come like, you know, and, and it's hard to have that faith when you're younger and when you're starting out or when, and even sometimes now when like you're, you, it's just, there's so many different things you could be doing, but it's, it's really just about putting your best work out there and then seeing where that takes you. Like whether it's continuing down that path, whether it's somebody reaches out to you about a really interesting partnership that you could do with a brand that you didn't know existed six months ago to help them, yeah. you know, steer their, um, the direction that their content is going to take, or, you know, there's just so much interesting stuff that can come. And it's because once you've really created a brand and a niche and a focus for yourself, people recognize you and they want to work with you. And 
that can, you know, that manifests in so many different ways. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about creating a brand and a niche and I was practically thinking through what that looks like and like what that ends up culminating into is really simple. It's just a way to describe and sell yourself and your skills. Yeah. And it's being able to identify a gap. It's literally a, it's not a sales job. I'll say it's a sales skill. When you yeah. were in South Africa or wanted to do the whole South Africa thing, you're like, there's a gap. There are magazines that strategically need to fill that gap. I'm going to find a way to make it very cheap. And the cost, you know, might be my time, but the value and the benefit will be, I'll be able to build my name and break into an industry that's yep. impossible to break into. So like, it comes down to just this like narrative, this, this narrative of who you are, why you're best for the job and what you're fitting into. And that applies across literally every industry. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people think that because you're creative, you know, maybe your work speaks for itself. Sure. But actually, no, right. Like yeah. your work yeah. has to speak for itself, um, for, for like a reason. Right. And so, so it's, I, I really enjoy kind of talking through these things and understanding how people navigated these creative spaces without roadmaps. I'm sure you get a lot of cold correspondence. Mm -hmm. What's one of the best cold emails, messages, DMs that afforded somebody an opportunity with you? Um, honestly, it's hard. I think most of the stuff I get is from people who are starting out who just want like the more general um, advice. And so nothing is really, it's, it's hard because like I said, the industry has changed so much since I started. And like, I feel like I could tell you what I did, but I wouldn't necessarily suggest doing what I did now. Right. So I feel like I don't know how relevant my feedback is for that, but I think, um, it's just, it's interesting seeing how many people are really still interested. Cause I always worry, like what is happening with journalism and like, do people still want to get into this? Or does everybody just want to do, you know, social media and that's that. And I think it's, it's, it's always great to get thoughtful questions from aspiring journalists to see that people are looking to do this. I just wonder how I worry how much value I can really add as far as like, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Because I feel like they know better than me these days. You know, it's interesting. I was hanging with a friend yesterday who has a 12 year old daughter and she was talking about her daughter um, who just put together this like incredible video of some sort that was like on her iPhone 13 or whatever the heck the news yeah. is. Um, but I was like, dude, storytelling and content is a currency now for kids. Yeah. In our yeah. generation, like, you know, our, our cool creative friends, like know how to tell cool stories and may have like these skills and have developed them. But for somebody who's 12, this is a, this is an asset and it's a competency. It's almost a mm -hmm. core competency, right? Yeah. So they figure out how to use tools. They figure out how to tell a story. So like journalism will, will never actually die. It might yeah. be the case that like some of the footprint might be taken over in, yeah. in TikTok and whatever is next and so on and so forth. But the ability to tell a good story, to expand narrative, to even archive kind of what's happening in history is yeah. such a relevant one. And, and, and back to like, I, I, I think about myself if I were 12 right now, I probably end up in a pretty similar place to where I am now, who knows, at least in terms of the muscles that I'm using and exercising. Cause I think on a day to day, I exercise my strongest and best muscles and the ones that interest me most. But like, I think the path would have been different. I would have been just yeah. creating all the time, yeah, all the time. And I think that's something young people need to know if they're aspiring to do anything is they just have to do it. And like, we are in an environment where the risk is very low to just create as long as you're not saying anything derogatory. Yeah. Or, you know, and that's the thing. That's where I feel. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely don't do that. But that's where I feel like I feel like a dinosaur sometimes when giving people advice. Mm -hmm. so I'm like, I my focuses are print and digital writing, like not even like social media stuff. And then I want to write a book. Like, do people read books anymore? Like, I don't know, right? Whereas like I do, I the do. kids, <laughs> good, yeah. Hopefully you'll read mine if I ever get around to writing it. Whereas like kids these days, I was trying to make a reel yesterday, and the amount of time it took me to do that thing. I mean, I'm happy with how it came out, but I know that your your friend's 12-year-old daughter would have done that in 10 minutes and done it much more slickly than I did, right? So I just feel like I have so much to learn from them. And it's like, do you really want, you know, the print writer, like the print magazine editor telling you how to shape your career in 2022? I mean, obviously, but like you said, there's certain core skills and core um, just ways to approach things. And like I said, the hustling, having the thick skin, those things are universal. But as far as like the tools and the ways you can really take travel writing and travel media to the next level. Cause I wouldn't even call it travel writing so much, right? It's travel media with all the different ways you could get involved. Like, I feel like I, I have a lot to learn from the young generation. Wow, I sound the like thing about thick skin, which is really important. Oh, I'm super auntie too. I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm a WhatsApp auntie actually. I'd like, we have audio messages on Slack now and I'm sending them and I'm like, I am my aunt and I'm okay with it. Like, why the hell is Layla sending me an audio message? Like just get me on Zoom, type it out. And I'm like, oh, hey, I remember that picture. Anyway, what I was going to say was, um, that um what were you talking about hold on i had a thought what was the last thing that you were talking about about the young generation was. learning how to do reels and, and actual oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay okay so you're talking about thick skin um i have thick skin too architecture great place to develop thick skin um mm -hmm. the, the the 
the genesis, like the core of thick skin, you will not develop thick skin unless you love yourself. And a faster way to love yourself is either by, you know, being in a really healthy environment where people remind you why you have to love yourself. Um, And maybe that doesn't always work, but really it's seeing reasons to love yourself also publicly, right? So when you're doing work as a Muslim American in Wyoming being like, hey, this is cool, but like, I'm not the other, you're kind of the other. And like, we have all these things in common or like, I, you know, one of you, whatever the kind of storyline is, um, being able to see that representation is so critical because young girls, like, you know, you and me, when we were young, have somebody to look to as a model, right? And and a lot of creative professions require thick skin because they are effectively built on the concept of criticism. You go to architecture school, you put a design together, it's somebody's job to criticize you. Somebody sends you a piece, it's your job to edit it. You're effectively constructively criticizing it, right? Any form of design is criticism. When you are in medicine, and medicine's a great career, anybody going into medicine, keep doing it. But like, sure, in, in residency, people might be mean to you, but you either fix the guy's arm or you don't. Right. There's like, like there's no in between. Right. Whereas you need thick skin to get through things and, and learn. You need thick skin to kind of prove that you what you read you can apply into practice. Yep. But when you go into professions where you need thick skin, where somebody tells you the way that you're thinking is incorrect and I can improve yeah. it, or what you produced is not good and I can improve it is a different type of thick skin. And without a base level of confidence in how you think. And, you know, it wouldn't hurt and that confidence in who, to have that confidence in who you are. You cannot attain it. And I think, like, that's, like, the thing that is really hard to capture and calculate when it comes to creative careers and, like, the pipeline and getting more people of color, getting more women, getting more minorities in is you really have to love yourself. And to love yourself, you need to see more representation of people who yeah. like you. So it's less embarrassing to be you. Yeah. And so you just ha- and you have the reference point that, like, there is what I'm doing is relevant and interesting and people are doing it, right? But I think the other thing, though, it's when it comes to having a thick skin for edits and stuff specifically is what I've learned at least is when I write something for a brand, like, you know, for a travel magazine or whatever, you also need to feel like it's a collaborative thing and you need to have enough confidence in your own work. Yes. To feel that what you're doing is great and you belong in this publication, but you also need to trust your collaborators, your editors. And just, I always look at it. Like I try not to be too precious about my words, unless there's something that's being really bastardized and ruined where I'm just like the, the editor and I are working in tandem and this is also as an editor, the writer and I are working in tandem to do what's best for the publication. And so I think that's where you just need to stop taking things too personally. Like you need to know that what you have is already good enough to be in that publication, but like you need to think beyond yourself. And I think that that varies different, you know, different creative realms too, right? Because some, if you are like an independent content creator, then you do need to have full confidence in yourself. But if you're going to be working with brands and with other things, you just need to learn that like everybody is in this together. And obviously like there are going to be some editors and some you know people that may not know what they're doing and you might not agree with them. But I think overall, it's just important to not take things so personally and, and just look at what's good for the final outcome. I think that brings us to a really good full circle moment where I think your work is really important because you're being able to represent yourself in ways that other people can maybe see themselves through you. I appreciate it. I love it. I'm super excited. Where can people find you um, so folks can, you know, figure out what you're doing in Antarctica and keep up with your journey? And hopefully, buy yes. Uh, hopefully, yeah, someday. Um, so my, I'm basically by Sarah Khan on everything. B Y S A R H K H A N. My byline. So my Instagram, my Twitter, my website is by But don't judge me because I am in the middle of a redesign that I've been delaying for a while. So hopefully in the next month that'll be live. I mean, it's it's there. An old version is there. Um, and yeah, so pretty much anywhere social media exists that I am on. I'm not really a TikToker, but I am by Sarah Khan on there as a few, even though I don't actually post anything. So yeah, that's pretty much where you find me. Thank you so much for your time, for your insight. I really enjoyed this conversation and really, really excited to see what's next for you, Sada.